Dr. Sandeep Nayak, who called him doctor beforehand and said, you don't have to call me a doctor. And I absolutely am not. No, I will call you doctor because you earned that title. Um, I just told you my little spiel about psychedelics and why it's important to me. But because you are the professional in this, please give everybody a quick introduction and tell them a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, yeah, my name is Sandeep Nayak. I am a psychiatrist and currently a postdoc soon to be sort of incoming faculty at uh, the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic um, Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Um, and yeah, much of what I do is essentially clinical trials of psychedelics for various psychiatric conditions, depression, anorexia, uh, various substance use disorders. And this is sort of a big area. It's being applied to a lot of different conditions that don't all, all overlap. So basically just trying to figure out what are the ways in which these substances could be useful uh, for various psychiatric conditions. That's kind of my main thing. Yeah. And because, and rightfully so, because I'm not a doctor, when I've been yelling about this stuff on this podcast for two and a half years, people always kind of look at me like I'm crazy. But through my own experiences with it, and as I just told you, and as anyone that listens to this podcast knows extensively kind of what my life is, but losing a brother to suicide, kind of going down drugs and alcohol myself, and then moving home with my parents at age 26 or 25 in 2016. And I've done psychedelics on five occasions in my life over the course of five years, each spaced about a year apart, all of them by myself. There was never like a party atmosphere. And although I sought therapy starting in 2016 with a psychiatrist in New York, and did it for four years, and it was wonderfully helpful. Medication is wonderfully helpful. A supporting, loving family is amazing. Exercise, normal sleep schedule, sure. But those are, to me, it's almost like it's almost like the U.S. government spearheading the space race in the 50s and 60s. And then afterwards, it gets privatized, and a lot of things come out of it. But no private company is going to undertake. I mean, what was the Apollo program? Like, like 2 or 5% of our entire GDP? Insane. No private company would ever do that. That's kind of how I view psychedelics. Psychedelics to me were that, I mean, I know all the cliche memes are there, but I mean, really like walking on the moon. It was so beyond anything I can possibly put into words. Everything else followed from it. I saw what I had to do. I knew my life was going downhill. I knew I needed help. Um, But there's kind of a trope around it an idea, a stereotype, that it's it's magic mushrooms, man. It's Timothy Leary, man. And to me, I'm like, guys, this is is like everyone sitting around with like a, a rotary phone making fun of the idea of an iPhone. It's like, it sounds goofy now, but this is, this is the next frontier. Could you maybe go into like, what got you into it? Or what are your thoughts on it? Am I romanticizing it? Is it not the next frontier? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing in general that's been interesting, so I've been at Hopkins for six years, uh, Psychedelic Center for two, and just doing psychiatry training for the, the four years, first four years that I got here. And one thing that I've always found really shocking is just the degree to which different groups of people think about, know about, uh, kind of conceptualize psychedelics very differently. So like, um, if we're, we're, we're moving to, and it's changed so quickly, like in the last couple of years, it's you have articles in Time Magazine, Good Housekeeping, uh, like just sort of stuff that my grandma might pick up and read, you know? 
Um, and so even in just a couple of years, it's kind of gone from this like fringe, uh, you know, illegal drug that what are these people doing to, if anything, the opposite. Now there's like maybe a little bit too much hype and a little bit uh, thinking this is going to be a magic bullet. that's going to fix everything. We're going to completely get rid of psychiatrists. We're going to have world peace. We're going to, I don't know. Um, and yeah, it's kind of, uh, also interesting the extent to which this is precedented. Like if you go back and read newspaper articles from the fifties, LSD was, they were really hyping it up. This is going to be this great treatment. That's going to fix all this stuff. Um, and of course the media cycle and everything that came out of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I'm kind of standing in the middle watching, things swinging wildly from one direction to the next. Um, And, you know, the main reason that I'm in this field is because I'm a psychiatrist and I treat people with various psychiatric disorders. The treatments we have, they help some people, they don't help everyone. And they don't, they simply just don't work well enough for enough people. And so I'm basically here because I do actually think that psychedelics have, you know, pretty strong potential to have a meaningful impact on, on treatment of psychiatric disorders. I, I, I don't think that they're going to like replace existing treatments. Um, I don't think that they're, I don't know. I, I think I have a very kind of conservative view about it. I think that that's probably the safe and the wise view to have and not just so you don't sound like an idiot 10 years down the road, like I probably will. But it's also, that's that's probably the most realistic thing. It had a profound effect on me. I might give it to Bob, and Bob might take it. And in, in the right setting, with a psychiatrist, you know, prepped for it, right set and setting. And he might come out on the other side and go, yeah. You know, it might just be like, it's like, it's like when you show a friend like a video on YouTube or something, and you're like, dude, this is the funniest thing. And you're laughing your ass off and your friend's looking at it and they're kind of just like, they're almost a little uncomfortable because they like feel like they have to laugh and they're like, eh. And you're like, you didn't love it? You know, you don't love the same band I do? It's like, dude, I don't even like the same genre as you. I'm very aware that like it could be that. I'm like, it might have been the key that fit in the keyhole that was my brain with my genetic imprinting, my my genetic makeup, my chemical balance, the events that happened to me, where I was raised, the influence I had, the coalescing of everything, and then my own romantic view on life. It might have been perfect for me. You might give it to my own siblings who have the same experience as me, and they might say it wasn't for me. So I think that's probably a very mature idea to have is – you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's whenever they come out, you know, the future, this is going to change everything. Flying cars, new nuclear atoms for peace in 1955, right? Eisenhower. It's the future. Dude, that was, that was what? That was 67 years ago. <laughs> we're yeah. still, we're still, you know, trying to get oil from Saudi Arabia. Like, eh, you know, maybe not so much. So. I mean, I find that the way that I talk about this changes a lot, depending on who I'm talking to. So like, if I'm talking to somebody who already sort of understands that psychedelics have this potential to be revolutionary, which they do, that I find that I tend to sort of scale back. But if I'm talking to somebody who, you know, thinks that like, what is this nonsense? This is just another, you know, another round two of the 60s. 
I find that I'm actually kind of going the opposite way, uh, just trying to pull everyone more into the middle, you know? So I should have come in here with like my mom or so. So I came in here, I came in here before we start recording and I was telling, I was like, this is going to be the best thing. And you gave, you gave me the pullback. I should have brought in like my mom and seen how you, we could do a little case study maybe even. I think, I think with both of you, it'd be pretty confusing for me how to handle that. Oh, you wouldn't know what, <laughs> and then we'd see the true you. You'd have to come out, man. No BS. You couldn't put a political face on it. You'd have, but, but again, I think, but that's, again, in all seriousness, is probably the most realistic view, right? Is just someone like me that is admittedly very optimistic. This is going to be the thing that it'll help. It will absolutely help. Just like penicillin helped, just like air travel helped, just like, you know, voice to text helped, like all sorts of things. But none of those, quote unquote, fixed the world, right? A car was a big step up. A Model T was a big step up from a horse, we are still in 2022 have nations invading nations and have genocides and have starvation. We have great Tesla's and it's like, it didn't fix everything on, on the other hand, someone that might, who might say, all you need is go talk to a shrink, get a kick in the pants. You need a new job. You need to hit the gym, take a Zoloft. You'll be fine. Uh, I mean, I've seen firsthand with my own brother that that didn't work. And you know, my brother was uh, doing a graduate research at Georgia Tech, GTRI. He loved the Air Force. He was doing like, classified research on, like, jet engines. Smoking hot girlfriend of 10 years. He was brilliant. I mean, had everything going. Funny guy, Funniest person I've ever met in my life. That's someone you look at, and it's like a Robin Williams. Like, a suicide doesn't make sense. And then you have to start looking at it and going, well, maybe there's another a way to attack this problem. We clearly don't have it figured out. Is that, am I getting anywhere close to, to the truth that you, that you know? No, I, th- I think so. And again, I mean, I think that's, that's why I'm in the field that I, I really do think this has high chance of being a impactful treatment that could help a lot of people who are, who are not being helped kind of in the ways that maybe they should be now. And, and also there's just kind of, it's, it's doing something different. It's, it's not just another pill. It's not another therapy. It, there is something kind of unique that, is, that psychedelic therapy does. Um, and and that, that's partly why it seems to be able to work across different types of conditions. What pill is going to help you quit smoking and improve your depression and uh, work for all these other different things, right? Um, so it probably is a psychological therapy. You know, people have to still work on stuff. But you, for example, it sounds like you got some sense of clarity about what you needed to do. You still had to do it. Yeah. Didn't, didn't do it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, it's just a different, a different avenue. Yeah. I mean, yeah, look at like my dad. Dad's in his 60s now. My dad had a heart attack when he was 40. And I think it scared the shit out of him, you know. My dad's type A. If there's ever been a type A person, it's my dad. Hard charging, you know, business executive. He's, it didn't do anything. He had to go out. Now he started like running every day. He's been, you know, getting his blood work done and eating healthy and taking supplements and, you know, adequate sleep and can't smoke. It's been 20 plus years of it. He's done the work. But sometimes you need that, that gut punch that says like, so like my, my, my first night of my sophomore year of college at Valdosta State University, August 7th, 2010, my 20th birthday. Wow, Valdosta. So 
I, I grew up in Waycross. So, oh, so do you know Valdosta? To, what's that? So you know Valdosta? It's like less than an hour from where I grew up. Yeah. That that I had a great two years there, but God, if there's ever been a a more backwards racist town, if I ever lo- loved it, have some great friends from there. I don't know what that says about me. I transferred to UGA. Man, I always say this: you want a time capsule to 1864, go to Valdosta, Georgia. Good Lord in heaven. Um, that being said, not to completely shit over Georgia, but um, my first night there in a frat house, I got way too high. I got way too high and realized that my GPA sucked and I was going downhill fast. I That day, I just put off weed and drinking for like 12 straight months. Went from a C student to a 4.0 student, transferred to UGA, published research in aquatic toxicology, did two more years there, 4.0s, aced the MCAT, got into Miami Medical School. That moment of clarity, though it came from a place of just stunning fear, it cut through everything. And I woke up the next morning, and then I proceeded to do 36 months of work. I don't know if I ever would have done that had that not... And, you know, I'm maybe not selling it to people because it wasn't some loving experience. For me, it was painful. Um, uh, The day I graduated... I know you didn't ask any of this, but I'll tell you anyway. The day I graduated UGA, just got into medical school, but realized I didn't think I wanted to go. That was the first day I ever did psychedelics. And that was a very loving experience. As I was like, hey, like you this kind of this calm came over me. I was like, you don't have to be a doctor if you don't want to be. Like this is your life. You shouldn't go become Dr. Kerrigan because you think your girlfriend or your family wants it. What do you want to do? You know, you achieve this, that's great. What else can you do? So that was like a very loving experience. It it showed me that life truly can be love. Two years later, it was a it was a harrowing experience of like, hey man, you've gained seventy pounds. You're on clonopin. You're drinking. You're taking cough syrup. You're smoking weed. You're contemplating suicide weekly now. You probably need to move home because you don't have a hand on the wheel anymore. So they can be. They can come from a place of like fire and brimstone, or they can come from the place of, um, from kind of alleviating your own anxieties. And to me, that's, yeah, it can be the carrot or the stick, which if if we could segue that, I would almost say that you don't necessarily need to be in a, a dire place. It's not like an EpiPen or Narcan where it's like, you take it when, you know, it's break in case, break glass in case of emergency. The first time I ever did them was, I mean, on paper, probably the best I've ever been in life. I had savings. I had no student debt. I was in great shape. Girlfriend, 4.0, just got into medical school. And that's when I took this. That's that's not when you go get treatment, yet that's when I did. Would you say that there's maybe any truth to that to where it's not just your life's in shambles? It might be something deep inside is on paper, everything's great, but there's something deeper that maybe you can't get to. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways of answering this. One is like, okay, in the medical sense, the analogy would be psychotherapy. So like the way that we're studying psychedelics is like for kind of discrete diagnosed mental conditions, right? But psychotherapy is something that like kind of works across different diagnoses, uh, kind of works for people who don't have a diagnosis at all, helps them figure their life out. um, And that's kind of how we think that psychedelic therapy works. It's as a you know, drug-assisted psychotherapy. So in that sense, it wouldn't be too surprising that 
that could conceivably help somebody who doesn't necessarily, you know, fit the bill for this diagnosis or that diagnosis. Same kind of process underneath in terms of what is being figured out. Um, but the other way, and, you know, the hot button topic right now is the clinical trials, I think. But psychedelics are drugs that have been used in all kinds of ways by all kinds of people. People use it for recreational reasons. They use it for spiritual reasons. They use it for um, ceremonial reasons. And so I think that if you look at these like ayahuasca churches or the Native American church, you know, they're, they may be getting something very helpful out of it, but it's not necessarily the purpose is to treat some condition. Sure. So um these are essentially healthy people who are using it to try to better their lives in this sacramental way. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's just a variety of ways that these things are, are, are used. And obviously we have laws and that structures the way that things can be studied. It structures the way things can be used sacramentally, but at the end of the day, they're, they're just kind of tremendously flexible uh, drugs that, can be molded into all kinds of different useful ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there's, there's something kind of funny about like growing up, you know, growing up in like a conservative Catholic household, 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 and going to private school. And, you know, once you start smoking weed, that's the gateway to everything else. And we always laughed at it. There's some sort of like, comical brilliance in that like Colorado was like the you know however many years ago decade ago to legalize weed and then how that spread out across the nation and then how like is it at Denver or wherever or Boulder that was the first to like decriminalize psilocybin there's something kind of hilarious about how weed actually was the gateway drug um that's just kind of like an aside but do you now and this is more of like a probably the more uneducated take that's probably myself and most of the people listening and uneducated in that we're not MDs. Is there maybe something behind the fact that this isn't a wildly expensive novel molecule? It's not something that they can just make an enantiomer of and extend the patent rights on. Is there, I mean, is there just big business influence on why if we're selling Zoloft or Wellbutrin or whatever for X dollars a year, even at a generic, and then, this natural thing that grows on cow patties comes out and it blows these out of the water. Is there a business interest to not, not want to pursue that route? And I also don't mean to jeopardize your future career. So feel free to dodge that. Um, well, I think put to put it simply, yes. Um, I mean, psilocybin is psilocybin if it's in a pill or a mushroom. Sure. And so I would imagine from the perspective of a company like Compass, who is kind of the big player who's ushering, you know, for-profit drug company that's probably going to be the one that, like, gets approval for psilocybin for depression. Yeah, I imagine that they it would not be good for their bottom line for psilocybin to be just generally legal. Um, and, you know, I think to some extent they may have made that argument about the organ um initiative but like i don't know if you look at for example rick doblin mm-hmm. he's run an organization that has ushering mdma through mission driven guy um they ended up creating a for-profit 
corporation within the nonprofit that they run, uh, because that's the way that you get enough money to run things at scale. And this is a guy who very much supports legalization of MDMA. Like it doesn't necessarily fit the bottom line, but ultimately this is a mission driven person who, um, that that's what he feels is best for the world. So yeah, of course there are, there are these pressures, but pressures are not destiny. I mean, pressures are pressures. Um, and there is something, I do think there's something added in the sense of like, you know, the medical way of taking a psychedelic. There's a lot of things wrapped around that, like protections wrapped around that. Um, there's a lot of people who would not, you know, who would, who would never use uh, a psychedelic if, if not, if not for that, uh, those kinds of protections. So I don't know. Um, I'm rambling a bit, but uh, I don't think that the fact that there are these different kind of ways that people are trying to, you know, create legal psychedelics. Uh, yeah, there's some tensions between them, um, but I don't think any any one any one is going to prevent others from necessarily developing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it would be kind of looking at like a guy like Rick Doblin of MAPS, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. It makes sense. I mean, you do have to have profit, and that's how the world works. That's how reality works, right? I think that's maybe kind of what what the hippies got wrong in the '60s. It's like, no, it, you still got to turn the lights on. You still got to put fuel in the car. Like, this can't all be kumbaya, as fun as that would be. Um, but yeah, there's also someone pushing for the legalization of this. I don't think you could really have a psychedelic experience, in my own opinion, I don't think you could have a revolutionary psychedelic experience and then try to like gut it and corner the market on it and like profit gouge it. They, they kind of seem, you can't really do that. You can't have that experience and then go forward and pull, somehow still do that, if that makes sense. I think you could. Okay. I mean, I think that's kind of, All right. Yeah. I mean, what is it? Christian Angermeyer, the guy who's, you know, very rich investor who's involved in Compass. I think his big revelation on psilocybin was he understands Bitcoin now. (laughs) (laughs) Like the the other thing is like the the way the kind of, there, there is a culture, uh, much of which kind of came from like the unique intersection of things that occurred in the 60s, 70s. There's, there's, there is such a thing as psychedelic culture that, that, phrase makes some it makes sense to say um and it tends to be tied with you know certain kind of liberal values and peace and all that stuff but if you look at history i mean the way that people have used psychedelics across history is tremendously tremendously varied and is not inconsistent with you know the coronation of this aztec king included um eating psychedelic mushrooms and killing like ritually sacrificing prisoners. Yeah, no, yeah. That, didn't the Vikings take psilocybin before they go into battle? Uh, the, that's kind of speculated that they took a different um, yeah. mushroom, Nita muscaria. So not not a psychedelic, but sure. yeah, yeah. It's not. Um, it's a good point. Yeah, it's not all. <laughs> you know, Marilyn Manson, his whole <laughs> little cult, like LSD, was probably a big part of how he was able to get people to go along with all this crazy shit he did. That is true. 
I mean, look at Sidney Gottlieb and MK Ultra. Now I don't know if Sidney Gottlieb ever did psychedelics, but I mean, I never knew this until I interviewed the author Norman Oler. MK Ultra, its predecessor was actually some of the original uh, tests were I think it was Auschwitz or Dachau. They, Dachau only did, yeah. they only did like a handful. It was towards the end of the war. Everyone knows about the Nazi medical experiments. I think these were really towards the end. But mind control, MK, mind control, it's a throwback to control in, in German, K. Yeah, man, that's not a place of love. That's not. I, I think they literally hired the guy. They literally hired the Nazi scientist, yeah, I think, who was, was running that. Was, doc, was it Dr. Bloma? That was one of them. I can never remember. Uh, They're all the same Hans. They're all demons. But it's. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's just nothing necessarily that prevents somebody from having a psychedelic experience that could lead them to. I don't know. I mean, there's plenty of like neo Nazis sure. who are really into psychedelics. Yeah. And do that as being somehow Some helpful. Communing with. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see that. You're committing atrocities. And maybe there is some human part of you that's telling you to pull back and then you go and have this experience and you're like, oh, this is for the great in some perverted, you know, there is justification for this. They get, you know, they get high on uh, on 10 grams of mushrooms and see the, the glory of the Fourth Reich. And it's like, dude, no, 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 no. Like, I mean, Putin might have dropped LSD and. So, had a beautiful vision about like a, an expanded Russian Federation or something. It's like exactly. Dick, exactly. Ch- Dick Cheney might've done mushrooms in 2000 and been like, Hey, we need to occupy the middle. Like it's not all, you're completely right. And I'm realizing I'm, I never realized just how I, I've tried to be humble about, it, but I've never realized just how wrong I am. It, it does kind of seem like nuclear energy. It can be over Hiroshima or it could be a power plant that only gives off water vapor. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's so important, like how it's used. Yeah. It's a tool ultimately. Oh God. And the yeah. fact, the fact that people can kind of take it on their own and have very beneficial therapeutic experiences. It's still, they kind of walk into that with all of these. Yeah. Like I, I was thinking the other day about how, you know, that book, uh, Aldous Huxley's doors of perception. Mm-hmm. So basically really, really beautiful writer, takes mescaline at a time when nobody's really talking about this mystical stuff yeah. with psychedelics. Takes mescaline, has a mystical experience, and writes about it in this very captivating literary way, and everyone then reads it. Um, and it, it becomes part of psychedelic culture, this mystical experience. If you read, uh, you know, psychedelics have been around since the 50s. I mean, they've been around forever, but like yeah. in terms of the Western imagination, they've really been around since the 50s. Uh, even earlier with peyote, but like if you read the accounts and the studies of people who are getting psychedelics in these, you know, laboratory settings, white people uh, who are in in kind of like non-indigenous settings, right? They're not having these kind of like mystical experiences. They're they're having these kind of confusing and difficult and strange. and, And so what I'm trying to say though is that like, injecting that conception into the culture, even if you're sitting in a room doing it by yourself, that is part of what you're bringing into it. Mm. You know what I mean? I don't know, actually. I mean, you, I'm, I'm curious actually with your own experience. What, what, what did you know about psychedelics before you, you did it? So first time I ever did it was, uh, 
day after I graduated, so it was December. I'm I'm weird with dates. I just remember December sixteenth, twenty thirteen. I had known for like a year that there was like a creeping thought that maybe I didn't want to be a doctor, but I had become a master of suppressing those thoughts and just cramming it back down. And I was always I had smoked weed a million times at that point. I'd had great, you know, far I meditate every day. I have since two thousand eight. So I wasn't really like new to the kind of mystical view of life. But I had always I always just looked at psychedelics as like, oh, I'd go crazy. I'd have anxiety. I'd have, because I do, even now, I smoke pot, I'll get anxious. I, I just will. Um, I was very scared of it. And I had a friend, uh, a lab partner that had always said, like, if you ever want a man, I'll just make him available. I was like, dude, I don't want him. And I finally, it all kind of came to a head. And I remember sitting in my car outside of my apartment. Like, I just started dating this girl. I just got into medical school in Miami parents lived in Maryland. I knew my brother was depressed in Atlanta. All my friends were moving away and I didn't really want to be a doctor. And it was all these things that it was just like, there's this big knot in my life. And I was like, I need to pull this apart. And I was like, maybe the thing I'm most scared of is what will do it. And I was terrified. I thought I was going to have an absolutely horrifying experience, but I was kind of at this point where I was like, I just, I just have to do it. And so I went into it with this very you're going to see demons and it's going to be terrible. Uh, had I, like knew the name MK ultra never really researched it more than that. To me, it was either you're either like the grateful dead or not. Um, and when I went in and did it, me and my buddy went up to his lake house. I mean, like North Georgia It's December. So there's no one up at the lake. It's not the summer. It was a sunny day. And we just sat out on a field, like no phones. And then we brought some food. We brought some alcohol. He was like, in case we get, you know, in case it's uncomfortable, he's like, we'll just get drunk and, you know, relax. And he was like a very like open, progressive friend I have, like very accepting of me. And uh, we just went out and sat in like a field for like seven hours and just like watched the sun. We didn't talk. We barely talked. And I just remember it. I mean, like some visual aberrations, but I didn't hallucinate anything like the colors were vivid. I remember seeing the light sparkle off the lake. And there was just this feeling of like, life doesn't have to be nonstop work punctuated by every once a month, I'd go out and get drunk with my friends and then be hardcore pre-med. It was like life can be this beautiful balance. And I know this is a roundabout way of answering your question. To me, what it showed me was like life can just be like, a, it can be a beautiful balance. And even from there, it was like, it still is going to be very hard work, but it can be hard work towards something you love, doing something you love and the work. So what it was, was it, it changed my perspective. Um, the next time I did it was, and at, my, so at that point I had become like a prophet, but I wasn't talking to anyone about it. It was very, I was like, this is amazing. That's when I decided to apply to pharmacy school. A couple months later, lost a brother to suicide the one year anniversary of a suicide, I took him again by myself. I uh, like, I kind of just, we had this like, I had this like kind of like room. We called it the Zen Den, me and my roommate. It was in our attic. We had a mattress. We had some like, you know, tie-dye, like tapestries, no electronics, no nothing up there. I remember like sitting there and uh, had the overwhelming feeling that, so whereas the first experience was like, there can be love. Life doesn't have to just be, it's all about work. It can be love. This experience was um, like my brother's gone. 
but I truly knew he was at peace. And whether that means he no longer exists or whether that means his soul is in some other realm or whatever, it was just this feeling of regardless of what it is, whether consciousness just goes out like a light, whether he's in heaven or in a new life, whatever, there was an overwhelming feeling of he is at peace. The next time I did it was uh, was a, a massive dose. It was it was twelve hundred fifty micrograms of LSD with with a precursor for ACO DMT, which is synthesized into psilocybin. Whoa, that's a it, lot. I, I I know. My first time I did it was two grams of mushrooms. Second time I did it was on my brother's anniversary was three. Right. I so the third time I went into it. It was because I was in a bad place and I got, uh, I, I know it's a lot. Trust me. I, I went into it knowing that it was, my logic was this, I'd felt suicidal. If I couldn't handle the experience of a lot of LSD, how could I possibly have the balls to step over the threshold into death? It's like, if I can't handle this, you know, if you can't handle OCHEM 1, how the hell are you going to handle OCHEM 2 kind of thing? So I did that and it was an also, I know I can see the look on your face. 4-ACO-DMT is a precursor to psilocybin. I had ordered that, and people don't believe me when I say, because I think an eighth of 4, or 25 milligrams of 4-ACO-DMT is equal to an eighth of dried Cubensis mushrooms. I took 250. So that was the equivalent to an ounce. Again, I can see the look on your face. Oh, my God. And I did all of this, and I sat in my room. Oh, you did this together? Yes. And yeah, I know June, June, June 23rd, 2016. And I had, I was, I sat in my room, I had like tapestries up and I, you know, had just some like ambient noise and I sat in there for like 16 hours. And, uh, I remember I wrote like a whole story. I tried to write a trip report about it and it turned into a story. I'll, I'll email it to you. But it was like, it was kind of the classical come up, like the giggles, the whatever. And then there was like the, a sort of like rushing past the things I had done before. You know, like at the end of the year when you study for the final, you're like, okay, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. And then you like have to study the most recent part. And you're like, I still have to master that. Like studying for the MCAT. You're like, I, you're like, I understand calculus, but I really got to like master cellular biology. So I kind of like punched through the previous realizations I had had. It was like, life can be love. Okay, cool. Uh, my brother's at peace. Okay, cool. And there were there were two uh, there were two others before that, and they were kind of the same things. And then I started to approach this like um, kind of like the like I almost like the core of like being. And it was just like I basically had the realization that whatever it is I'm experiencing in this life is is a challenge that I am here to overcome, and it's. I, for instance, I don't know how I got into medical school. I withdrew fail from pre-calculus three straight semesters. And then on the fourth semester, I got an A. You can keep quitting suicide or you just live out your life. You have to take the course again. Or you don't have to if you're some eternal soul. But for the same reason I went in and took pre-calculus, it was because I did ultimately, as much as I hated it, I wanted to master it because I wanted to move to the next level. And and this is kind of like the realization I had was that, or at least what I believed, obviously there's no way to verify it is that I'm like in this incarnation to overcome something. I don't know what it is, but for whatever reason, I'm a white guy named Tommy Kerrigan who lost a brother to suicide. 
And it's just, that's just what it was. And, um, I could commit suicide. I could end the subjective pain. Mind you at that point, overweight, abusing a lot of drugs, not a happy person, not a good brother, not a good boyfriend, not a good son, not a good friend. I could, I could end. And there was really no fear. It wasn't like you're going to go to hell and it wasn't Mm -hmm. like you are bound to have to do this again. It was just, you know, you can go into whatever peace, love, you know, the universe is all loving. God is there. God accepts you. But if you want to do this again and reach whatever it is I'm trying to reach, like you'll have to go through this again. And then ultimately it was, and you also have seen what the loss of one person a suicide did. I saw what it did to his girlfriend. I saw what it did to his brothers. I saw what it did to his, our parents. And there was just this sort of like, ultimately like you will be forgiven. Like I forgive my brother, but there's no way of ignoring the fact that you will do pain. And in that moment, I realized my parents have been trying to get me to move home for a while. They knew I wasn't well. In that moment, I realized I have to move home. And I know if I move home from Georgia to Maryland, I won't have any friends anymore. I knew that eventually that would lead to the destruction of my relationship with my girlfriend, and it did. I'd have no social life. Uh, They would control every aspect of my life. They would make me do therapy. I couldn't be some pot-smoking hippie anymore. And it would be the end of whatever roller coaster I was on and I was like but if I do it that trial moving home it will eventually end and then it brought me back to my first psychedelic trip and then life can be love so I I, I texted my mom and I said I, I need to move home like I'm not doing well and once I did that it was like a hundred thousand pounds were lifted off my shoulders it was just like the universe smiled at me and it was like, fuck yeah, man. And then it was just like peaceful. It was like, it was like taking off shoes that were too tight. It was like, okay, this is going to suck. And it did suck. Five years living at home, no social life, no sex life. Sorry for the TMI. No nothing, no fun. But it took five years to rebuild therapy. I'm still here. I've lost most of the weight. I live on my own. Parents are thrilled to see me doing well. My brothers didn't lose another brother to suicide. I'm building this podcast. I meditate every day, balance my own budget. I get to interview. I'm interviewing you. Dude, I've interviewed Dr. Robert Malone eight times. I've interviewed Charlie Duke, who's walked on the moon. I've interviewed the head of the Soviet bioweapons program. I've interviewed the Black Hawk down pilot. I've interviewed guys that work on nuclear submarines. I have the coolest life oh, in the world. The Soviet bioweapons program? Ken Alabek. Yeah, I've interviewed him eight times. Defected in 1992. Dude, I've interviewed so- Dr. Peter McCullough. I've interviewed how, how, uh, Michael Jackson's publicist, Howard Bloom. And like a million others, Delta Force guys, CIA, whatever. I have the coolest life. And I, I just built like a gaming channel. So now me and my friends have like a gaming channel. And I get paid to do this. I work out when I want. I interview the guests I want. No one told me to interview. I, you, I did it because I can. Not only that, I get to talk freely. I have no boss. I did the thing. I stuck. I, st- I went through pre-calculus and I did it. So I know this is like a 20-minute answer to your question. I didn't really have any preconceived notions going into it. I just kept walking up to the edge of fear and going through it. And I have not done them since that day in 2016. And I got to be honest, I don't really see myself doing them anytime soon. So there's a really long answer. Yeah. I mean, they, they, <laughs> once you get the messaging of the phone, yeah, you know. Yeah. You use, the, you use the microscope, you see the Petri dish, you draw it on your lab report, and then you put it aside. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, like, suicide is, 
usually not a desire to die. It's a desire for the current life to end. Well, that's my, so yeah. Your life ended. You have a new life now. You know, oh, kudos to you. I didn't even think no, about it like that. What's, I didn't, just even in think, the sense, I didn't uh, think about it like that. That life ended. Yeah, you're no longer living that life. Huh. I feel like usually, usually when people get to the point of they're thinking about suicide, they they just really want their life to change. They, they they don't want to live that life anymore. And then if they realize there's a different way for that life to end, new life to begin, it does not require killing themselves. Then that leads them down that path. And yeah, there's also this realization that. You know, of course, there's like radical life extension. Guys like Bezos are probably all lived to their thousand. But there was also this realization that, like, hey, maybe it doesn't get better. Most people say there, you know, there are two unavoidable things: death and taxes. I look at it as I get to die. That was one of the realizations from that night. Was like, hey, maybe this doesn't work out. Maybe I try for another fifty years and I'm still miserable. Eventually, the body just conks out. If it's not cancer or dementia, it's just cellular oxidation. And I had this beautiful realization. I was like, oh, the game ends eventually. You're in last place in Mario Kart. Eventually, the race ends. You don't have to keep being in last place. And I was like, oh. So I got to, I gotta, you know, roll up the sleeves, you know, a little elbow grease. I got to make sure that I don't commit suicide and hurt everyone around me. But it was also like, no matter what happens it does eventually end. And if it eventually ends anyway, why not wing it? Why not go for it? Why not go for like the coolest thing, which for me is I wake up at the crack of noon every day. That's my sleep schedule. I get to, that's what I do. I work harder than anyone I know, but that's just like, I get to do that. And it's like, Oh, cool. If so, not just go for it, but I mean like really go for it, try to have the coolest life you can. And that's what I do every day is I try to just, I'm like, I don't look at anything as out of like out of reach. I'm like, I want my life to be cooler. I want it to be cool because you kind of just have the balls to go for it. It's so you can see my bias towards psychedelics, right? I mean, truly has reshaped well, I mean, my existence. They've, they've, it sounds like they've helped you enormously. So I don't know. But I, I try to be aware that that might not be all that a bias. You know, you, you have your own experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've been a terrible host. I feel like I've just talked for the last half hour. I haven't like, I feel like you should bill me for some therapy, man. I, you know, I feel like I should, I need to pay for a session. Um, but yeah, that being said, like that was one day in June, 2016, there was then, you know, what we're coming up on six years of work of just ungodly amounts of work, painful work, you know, I'm glossing over that, but like living at home, getting broken up with, having no friends, seeing your friends get married and buy houses and you're turned 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and you're living above your parents' garage and you're like, what am I doing with my life? I was going to go to medical school. The work is still there. I'm just, I'm glossing over. It's like you. It's like just someone said, Dr. Nyack, how do you, how do you get into researching psychedelics? You know, after you graduated high school, you'd be like, well, I did college and then medical school and then and, you know, residency, but now I'm here. You just you're just glossing over like something that's like, hey, that's hell on earth. Like it's a it's a lot of work. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of. I think the thing that's toughest for people to bear 
in terms of suffering. It's meaningless suffering. You know, if the uh, suffering is meaningless, right? Uh, if you have a sense like, okay, yes, this sucks, but this is adding up to something or this is valuable or whatever it might be. People can take endless amounts of meaningful suffering. That's right. Actually, yeah, that's right. My that's the trick, though. You got to find the meaning. You got you to find some way of making it meaningful. It's like playing a video game, and every time you level up, the only thing that happens is like you level up. It just says you're at level forty eight now. You're like, what am I doing? Versus like, if I get to fifty, I know I can get like extended ammo mag, or I can get like a drone strike. There's a meaningful suffering. You can grind in a video game when you're like, oh, I want to unlock a new gun. Maybe that's not the best example of talking about mental health, but I mean, <laughs> right? That, that's how it's worth it. You don't get the LMG and it's like, all right, man, that's some red flag law shit. No, but I mean, my mom would say that. My mom would say that in those two years between John's suicide and me moving home. April 15th, 2014 to I moved home on August 1st, 2016, two, two and a quarter years. Was that she would always say like, you're rudderless. You're just, I was suffering and just suffering and the drinking and the weight gain and the lethargy and the lack of employment was all me running from suffering. But every time the drug wore off, I was still suffering versus like now like I woke up every day, I go to the gym, I kill it on the treadmill. I kill myself with weights and I take a cold shower. It's suffering, but I always do that. Cardio, weights, cold shower, meditation. Because when I come in and do the podcast, I'm so like laser clear. It's suffering with purpose. If I do a podcast without any of that preparation, it's a drag. Versus now I get to talk to you, someone I've never spoken to in my life, aside from a couple emails. And now I get to have like the coolest fucking conversation I've had. This is one of like, this is, this is probably now like top 10 of my all time episodes for me. Just, oh, just wow. so you know. So not that you care, but you get that trophy. 755 episodes. This is for me is definitely a top 10. But there's meaningful but, suffering, right? Yeah. And you're going to, I mean, the, you're going to suffer anyway. You, if yeah. you may as well suffer meaningfully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, you're, it's that, it's that, uh, my buddy's like a bodybuilder. Just one of those guys like you just love to hate. He's like six four, looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're like, he doesn't even have to try. He just walks by and girls break their neck looking at him. But I remember him telling me he was like, he was like, you suffer the pain of discipline or suffer the pain of regret when it comes to dieting. So I think Bruce Lee said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, no, I know it wasn't his, but he was like, suffer the pain of discipline or suffer the pain of regret. So either force yourself to eat the chicken and broccoli and try to get the abs, or give in and get the Big Mac and then you sit there the next morning looking at your spare tire and you're going fuck it's one or the other or you can commit suicide which then comes back to the questions I brought up earlier you go through it again or it's over or whatever um, Just and also just as an asterisk full disclosure everything I've said on this podcast represents me and not Dr. Nyack or Johns Hopkins I don't want to get to make that disclosure whenever I have on a researcher um, I know I've got your, I know you got a heart out in nine minutes. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd kind of like to emphasize or we can always schedule another episode? Um, I feel like I've been kind of shoveling words down your throat for the last 30 minutes. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, 
so much <laughs> that it's impossible to touch on in yeah. any of time, really, when it comes to these topics like psychedelics, mental health. But, I mean, I think the, the meaning thing is one of the most important. Um, and psychedelics are, you can try to figure out, like, okay, what, what does all psychedelic experiences have in common? I mean, people talk about the visual stuff, they talk about this, they talk about that. But for the vast majority of like big dose psychedelic experiences, good or bad, they are meaningful. Um, and your dad having a heart attack, good or bad, meaningful, sure. right? Um, and just these kind of big life events that people can divide into, sorry, no, my phone, about a before and after. That's, I think, one of the, the things that psychedelics do best is they produce meaningful experiences and those have to be turned into something um right but it's again it's adding meaning to suffering as a way of allowing it to change um these are not things that just are going to make you feel better it's not really how it works and frankly that's not even really how antidepressants work um even there like if somebody is depressed they start taking antidepressants they have to start living in a way that's not like a depressed person. They still have to do that. They still have to build a meaningful life. Um, and yeah, I don't know that it's all that easy to talk about. We don't have like the, you know, the shortcuts and all that, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of, that's kind of one of the most important things when it comes to regaining a life worth living is regaining some kind of, or, or creating some kind of meaning. Yeah. Yeah, I would say like another kind of takeaway from it for me was, yeah, there's really only like one kind of treatment that just makes you feel better. And I think that's probably like palliative hospice care. You're at the end of your life and they're just going to keep upping the dose of of painkillers so that you don't feel pain. That's like a very limited window of times when you can just feel better indefinitely because the indefinite is not that long. But one of the things that it also I also took away from was for like two years while super depressed, um, I would I would never really want to embark on anything that took longer than like today. And so I'd get really into going to the gym for like two days and then I'd stop again. Get really into doing whatever and then I'd stop. And the realization that I eventually get to die was embark on a 10 year thing. And if the time passes and you're still alive, you'll have the, you'll have, you'll get to reap the rewards of your work every day. And if you die, then it won't matter. And it sounds silly, but that's, that's probably one of the big, I have an Excel spreadsheet that I started on December 12th, 2019, when I started this podcast and I track like how many episodes have done subscribers, uh, and I listen to audiobooks nonstop, so I have stuff to talk about. I list like the number of books I've listened to. And every day I keep a record of did I work out and did I do a mile on the treadmill? And it sounds stupid, but you blink your eyes and I'm on day like like eight hundred something. And it's like since I've started this podcast, I've I've done like seven hundred miles on the treadmill. Like I I I wait I I did the math and I think weightlifting I I lift three and a half tons, five days a week. I've been doing for two years. It was like millions and millions of pounds. I've listened to like 70 or 80 
like nonfiction historical audiobooks. But for me, that's like another meaning thing is I just keep track of what I do every day. And so no matter how down and out I feel, there's always at least one more view on the total views on, on my podcast. There's always like one more subscriber. I always walk one more mile. And so when all the other meaning vanishes, I still have this thing of like, just kind of keep plugging along. And to me, if everything else is fucked, I'm like, well, I wonder how many more books I can listen to. And that may not sound enticing to anyone, but anyone who's truly been in the depths of despair and and suicidal ideation knows that sometimes you just need like one thing to hook onto if it's keeping you afloat. And for me, it's also habits you're describing. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, like your life has you're describing the structure of your life. Yeah. So when people get very depressed, that's the thing that goes out the window. Yeah. There's no structure. There's no like, oh, it's three o'clock. This is what I'm supposed to be doing now. It's you're just constantly having to invent it. Yeah. Uh, when you don't have motivation, you don't have. Yeah. You don't see the purpose to it. When you're least able to put effort into creating something is. And now you're expected to when you're depressed. Yeah. And that's, that's why, like, sometimes when people go to a psych hospital, they get sometimes they get better quite quickly while they're there just because they have that structure. You know, you got to wake up, you got to talk to these people. It's time to eat breakfast, time to eat lunch, go to group. Just that alone can sometimes jog them out of that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost down to muscle memory now. It's almost reflexive. I get up. First thing I do is make my bed. I don't even think about it. Even when I'm hungover, I'll be completely fucked up and I won't even be doing podcasts. I'll be at like a buddy's lake house. I'll still get up and like make the bed. So it might be more effort to not do that at this point. It is. You'd have to think about it more. Dude, I get up and I don't even think about it. I do the dishes. I just I, I take all the dishes out of the dishwasher. I have my workout clothes folded at the foot of my bed. I put them on. I have them ready the night before. Before I even realize what I'm doing, I'm like walking to the gym. Yeah, it would take more effort for me to not go to the gym and take a cold shower and meditate. I'd be like, what am I, what am I doing? Um and it took a long time to get turn those into effort. For a long time, that took a lot of effort, and now I don't even think about it anymore. But um, I know you got to run. I know you got a hard out, so I'll, I'll, yeah, let, you, should, I'll let you go. I, I know. I, I normally, when someone has a hard out, I normally mean to let them go like five minutes before that. But I, being a rude host, took you right up to it. Um, no, all good. Anyway, enjoyed uh, enjoyed talking, Tommy. Yeah, man, that was that was cool as shit. You're a cool guy. I'd love to have you on again. Um. Thank you so much for talking to me, man. Regardless of the yeah. podcast, I just got a free therapy session. I feel bad. I feel like <laughs> I need a vent on you. <laughs> Thanks so much, right. man. Care, Dr. Nyack, thank you, sir. Everybody else, take care. Recording stop. Peace.